Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Jeep, we are excited to have you back on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, your last interview, we got a lot of great responses. In fact, we got way too many great responses. So thank you for you know, giving us the time, the privilege again to have you on the show. And since the last time we've talked, we've interviewed some other Intel Alumni Network. We're excited to have you as part of this series. But that last episode, we talked about your time at the UN. We talked about your time at Intel. We talked about a lot of things you're doing. And our guests can reference that interview. Go to our website, thesiliconvalleypodcast.com or on any iTunes, Spotify, any of those podcast platforms. You can reference it in YouTube as well. But Jeep, what have you been up to since the last interview? I'm glad to be back. It means I didn't mess up last time. A lot happened, actually. 2021 is quite an interesting year for me. During COVID, a lot of people worked from home, including myself. And since we talked, I picked up a few things. One, most importantly, now I teach um, at High School of Business. UC, UC Berkeley. Berkeley. And Impressive. I teach, I teach impact investing. Um, it's a class where students would go try to invest in real life. It's a, half of it is like a theory base and half of it is like practicing base. Another thing that I really liked is I continue venture investment in Latin America. So I'm a founding partner at Mr. Pink. is an impact investment fund investing in emerging markets. And most importantly, I started to also give back to Southeast Asia, the region. I'm from Bangkok, Thailand. And I give back by giving a talk, giving knowledge, and try to help bring up the next generation entrepreneur on how to create their and found their own companies and scale successfully. And so that's like the side things that I do for fun. So these are some of the things that I picked up in 2021. I really liked how you mentioned your class is actually hands-on and the theory behind it, that combination that it really seems, at least when I was an undergrad, a lot of that seemed to was lacking. That sounds amazing to me. And you're giving back to your home country and Southeast Asia. Pretty incredible. I'm curious, you're doing all these things and your past career, we talked about the UN, we talked about Intel, there's all these things to it and venture capitalism. Is there anything that ties everything together? First of all, I spend a very short time at the UN. I spend a lot of time at the World Bank. So I actually worked at both um, institutions. And when I looked back, it's interesting that it looks like I jump across industries, as you mentioned. A lot of people ask me this question from international development to big enterprises Intel to running a pre-IPO startup, now founding a venture capital firm um, investing in emerging markets. But there is one theme across all the work that I do in my entire career is global impact. And I think at the time, I have to tell you the truth that I didn't realize that this would call impact investing or global impact. It's like when I looked back and realized that at the World Bank is about reducing poverty, helping or assisting ministries of finance in emerging markets to improve economic development. So I was trying to um, assist um, the government in making sure that people improve their standard of living. At Intel, I incubated and created one of the first Android-based 
tablet business for the company. And it was used, used for education for emerging markets all around the world. It was also used for entertainment, right? Used by kids, used by senior population. It was a low-cost device. It was launched right after the iPad was launched. But at the time, not a lot of people could afford an iPad. So they need a low-cost device to get access, right? So that's also an impact device in a nutshell. Doing a VC, I work with a lot of international entrepreneurs who might not have an access to Silicon Valley venture capital, who might not have knowledge per se on, okay, what it really means to really found a successful company and scale a company. So when I look back all these things and I realized that it's actually the key thing that really motivates me throughout my career, 20 years, is not only I can generate financial returns, but I can generate impact return at the same time in different forms. And the word impact investing is a new sort of like concept as well. It's a new term. It's not a new concept, but it's a new term that is invented, you know, by Sir Ronald Cohen in the UK around 17, 18 years ago. And it made sense. And this is something that I'm really passionate about. And I think that moving forward, hopefully, every single investment should be impact investment. That's a pretty strong statement there. So before diving deeper into that, because, well, now that you've mentioned impact investment, that opens up a plethora of things we can talk about. Let's go back to the Intel Alumni Network. Are you still involved there? What's happened there? And like I mentioned, we've interviewed a few people from the network. We got a lot more lined up. And I just want to connect every, all the dots. Yeah. Intel Alumni Network is a gem. It's, a, it's an underutilized network. Okay, so let me step back and tell you a little bit about um, Intel Alumni Network, or we call it IAN. When I joined IAN as a part of the board of director, I realized that the people on the board, people who are the alumni, these are phenomenal assets. Once they graduated from Intel 20, 30 years ago, they found their own venture capital fund. You notably is at Kleiner Perkins. A few of us have joined Kleiner Perkins back then. John Doerr and a lot of other prominent alumni. Some of them also founded their own VC fund. Some of them went on um, to become a CEO at uh, other enterprise company um, like Pat Gelsinger. Right now, he came back to lead the CEO, uh, to become a CEO at Intel. We also have a lot of alum who decided to do a startup. So what, why I'm saying this? I'm saying this is because Intel Alumni Network is one of the largest technology executive network in the world. And people didn't realize that. So when I joined the board, I was like, wow, I, if you want to, say, raise fund as a startup, you can just tap into Intel Alumni Network first because they know your thought process. They know your training. They know your experience. If you want to raise a fund as a venture capitalist, you ask Intel Alumni, how did you do it? How did you raise your first fund? How did you go to emerging markets? Because we have offices all around the world. I think this is phenomenal, but it's also underutilized. So we're going to change that this year. We're going to improve it in 2022. We're going to expand um, network base, getting younger generations who left Intel to join the network. They get to learn. They get to expand their social capital and political capital, they get to do new things in an easier way. 
it's almost like graduating from UC Berkeley and you have your own set of alum that you can reach out to. This is the same thing, but it's much more focused on tech. So that's what we plan to do. And I'm still engaged. I'm still on the board and I hope to do more. It sounds like a great alumni network is a, thank God I know someone that's part of it. <laughs> it's phenomenal. And people are hilarious and they want to give back. I think that's the most important thing that I found is that when I mentioned to you that I form a project called C Sky Lab to really give access, knowledge, and network into back to my home country and Southeast Asian countries. Everybody on the board raised their hands and said, gee, how can I back you up? How can I help? How can I transfer my knowledge? Because I was trained by Andy Grove and teach the next generation to be successful in order to reduce inequality. And I was like, this is amazing. We got to do more. This is the underutilized asset. So we got to have to invite more people to, to realize this. That's an incredible inv advisory group you're going to have for your fund. And that's just, that's second to none network you can tap into. That's incredible. Okay, now let's go back to the investment part. Okay, okay. great, great talking about the Intel alumni network. But you'd mentioned before, all investment in the future impact investment. Does it contradict in the way thinking you have impact, but you have investment as you need a return on that for your investors? Is there, when you bring that concept up to people, what kind of responses do they give you? When I talk about impact investing, there is still misnomer in people's mind. They thought it is a nonprofit. They thought this is really targeted social um, impact, but nothing else, not financial return but it's actually not. And this is what I teach as well, that impact investing, I call it financial returns are necessary, but not sufficient. Impact returns are the sufficient condition. Because if you look at the development in Silicon Valley, and I'm, I'm talking purely in tech, okay? Technology industry has progressed a lot in the last 20 years. At the same time, it actually divided people, people who have access, they became successful financially. People who didn't have access, they, became, they fell behind. And these group of people, you can look at them as people who have access. You're in the Bay Area. They went to certain school. They are a certain gender. They're a certain race. And you have heard a lot about that. Now we are in 2022. The evolution of the investment is no longer just about risks and return. It's about risks, return, and impact. It's the transformation of, of how do you look at the capital to really solve the social problem without sacrificing financial returns. And I think this is something new to a lot of people. They didn't realize that actually impact investing means that they get financial returns as they invest in a venture fund or in startup uh, companies, but they also get impact returns or social returns, whether that may be in terms of environment, gender inequality, uh, emerging market investments, and a lot of other areas that we need to reduce inequality in terms of race, in terms of incomes, in terms of genders, and a lot of other areas. Now, you'd mentioned emerging countries there, emerging markets. How important is impact investment to these countries, why is it important? Why isn't it important? It's not just important, it's a must. 
I believe that impact investing is going to be the key solution to move the economy forward. Just to give you a specific example, I went to a few countries in Southeast Asia pre-COVID. I grew up in Thailand in the first half of my life. I've been in the U.S. the second half of my life. When I went back a few years ago, one thing that I noticed immediately was that income inequality was much wider. Rich people got so much richer and poor people got much poorer. And it created friction in the society. At the very top, you have families who control conglomerates, many conglomerates. They have a span of businesses in different areas, very diversified from real estate to telecom to banking and whatnot. Now, it's very hard for people who are truly talented in the country to climb up the social ladder. So now, you look into what are some of the key things that could be the new injection into the economy. And at the same time that technology is rising really, really fast, entrepreneurs can be very successful if they know how to do it. And it's just about knowledge, access, and network. Impact investing is the key because you use technology to build the new enterprise, which started from uh, a startup company. So you do a startup in a way that you can create the impact in the society. And that is the catalyst, I believe, to close or narrow income inequality. Just to give you an example, I invest in Latin America through my current fund. One of the first companies that I invested in is an ed tech company, education tech. That's how we call it. It emerged during COVID. A lot of people lost their jobs in the country, in Peru, Argentina, and whatnot. And people who got suffered are people who are in the low economic spectrum. So say taxi driver, they couldn't you know, um, drive anymore because people were home, they work from home, they lost their jobs. This company basically created an upskill, reskill, upskill type company. So these drivers can come and take classes for free. And they become a developer. And I'm talking about low, low level developer. So maybe four months, six months, they can do a little bit of coding. The startup help push them back in the job market, help them secure the first job. Then they pay back the startup company in terms of commission. So the startup has an incentive to help these workers get a very good job, higher income, because that's how they get commission. And these workers, they realize that now they earn 3x, 4x compared to previously. They liked it. They came back. Now they said, I want to be a mid-level developer. So they do again. So it became the cycle that you create uh, employment. You increase the income, with, which creates spillover, positive spillover through multiplier in the economy during COVID. And the founders of the companies, they're women. This is win, win for me as an investor, win for the entrepreneurs who founded the company, win for the society, because now you create employment in a way that the situation was very hard to create employment. And this is what I'm talking about in terms of impact investing. That is really a must in emerging markets that entrepreneurs and investors have to find ways on how to create social impact through financial investment. 
So this example that you gave this company, I mean, here in Silicon Valley, everything is scaled globally. From yeah. day one, the thought process is, okay, how do we get to this market, then that market, and now world domination? These countries, the emerging countries, they might not have that, I'm not sure, the mindset or the resources really to scale broad like that. I'm just, I've traveled, when I've traveled, I've met a lot of people that have as bad a term, it is like small island syndrome, where they think of their small little, their town, they don't think globally. How do you get these companies to scale globally? Yeah. What I like to say is think global, start local. The company that I gave you an example was um, started in Peru. And now they scale outside Peru too. There is no boundary. So country is just the boundary. But the beauty of software business is you can scale across country based on their competency. In this case, I mean, different companies have different scalability, just depending on the stage and the strategy. But for example, in this case, they said, I'm just going to scale to other Spanish-speaking countries first before Portuguese-speaking. And in fact, even though they're a Latin company, when they're ready, they can go scale in the Philippines. So there are a lot of commonalities and a lot of broad-based demand that would help these companies become successful. So most outstanding entrepreneurs that I found, or at least uh, that my fund invested in, they always think global. And it shows on their business plan and during the you know, due diligence, pitch days, they said, this is going to transform humans' life. If it's not global, at least regional. And that's what we are interested in as well. We want to know that you think big, you can solve key problems, and you can scale because that's the VC business. And on top of that, again, you create impact. In some of these countries, I've heard and have I've had talks with government officials that are talking about we have these investment models where we'll give this much to startups, this much to companies to help them grow, to try to develop something here. Have you had conversations or have you seen these governments trying to make investments in companies to try to increase the economic development? What models have you seen? What works in your mind? What doesn't? Can you give us a little bit of information? It depends on the goal of the government. I think different countries are different. If you look at Israel, right, is it if, you in, if the government invests in startup, for what purpose? Is it national security or is it to really help create the new technology hub for the country and for the region? I can't speak to all the governments, but what I've noticed is that the countries that are successful, they know what they want. It's the same as the private sector. For countries like Thailand, for example, that I, I was a little bit close to, a country of my origin, and I, in 2021, I happened to help spearhead a little bit of economic development strategy on if we want to improve technology ecosystem or create a new technology ecosystem, what would it look like? I don't believe, I have to say, I don't believe that investing in startups is always the right way or the right strategy for the government because the public sector, its role is not to pick and choose the winner. Who is going to become the unicorn? Who is going to get to IPO? If they want, if the goal of the country or the government is to really create a technology ecosystem at large. 
and have a lot of entrepreneurs and private venture funds to fund those entrepreneurs. They have to help build private sector. And how do they do that? I actually really like the UK model. The government also fund venture funds, big funds, medium-sized funds, small funds, first-time managers. It's you want to build a beautiful ocean and you need to see many kinds of fish at all sizes and many types of animals so that the ocean is beautiful. And that's how it becomes sustainable. So the first step to me, if the government wants to really build technology ecosystem, is to think about how can they help fund private sector, perhaps through investment vehicle. Venture fund at all size, is that the right role for the government instead of going to pick and invest in startup in particular? Unless there is a different strategy for the government that they really need to achieve. Now, you've already answered this question, but I want to say it anyway, just maybe we can dive a little bit deeper. All the models out there that you've seen, all the different government, you said you like the UK model, you mentioned the Israel model. If you were to take the best of all of them put together, what would that model look like? Or which country? Good question. <laughs> and you stumped me on that one. But the one that you think would work the best globally. I would like to step back and say the model that we should move forward for all of it, and I'm bold on this, for all venture investment is risks, return, impact. It has to be a win. Win for the investor win for the entrepreneurs, and win for the society. And that would be the model of the impact investing that I would encourage all the investors to really think about. In fact, the current, a lot of current LPs who I'm working with through my fund, they already have that mentality. They realize that the technology investment has evolved a lot in the last 20 years. Some we made a mistake. We didn't fund the right company. Some, they started to see the clear benefit on how they can incentivize the society through investment. It could be environment, for example, like food tech. How can we reduce um, CO2 through farming and a lot of other things? Another example is I really like Zipline. By the way, I have to say, I wish I invested in this company. I did not, but I really like them. Just for our audience, we don't give any investment advice here. <laughs> and the company basically used drone to deliver blood to patients in remote areas, starting in Rwanda. And these are the kind of companies that we should think about funding. It solves social problem. It solves um, income inequality problem. It solves a lot of specific things that money can be used in a good so. For global, per, for global perspective, not specific to any country, I would encourage LP, limited partners who would like to invest in a venture fund, to think in this area. I would like to encourage fund managers to think about how can I maybe set aside a part of my fund to do ESG type work, which is a part of impact investing in this area. We talked about, can we use our capital to really help entrepreneurs in the areas that you never thought about. So this is the, the solution. I would say almost a silhouette in my mind that I've longed for in the last 20 years that it has to happen. So I have to go back to the whole money thing though. Okay. We talked about 
governments invest in the UK model into first time fund managers, just getting the money to the, the people to invest. What does that fund structure look like? Because it is public sector money. It's the people's money going to these VCs. Do the VCs get to take, you know, two and 20? Is it, what's the fund structure like? How does that even work? Now, I can't talk about the specific on what's the deal um, with the UK government. I did not receive fund from them. I wish I could. <laughs> But so the fund structure is, my understanding is the same. So it's um, 80-20, meaning that they became one of the LPs in the fund, not the single LP. Okay, so they would seed the money. Sometimes they could become an anchor, meaning they could be one of the big size investors of the fund, venture capital fund. And if the return is positive, they would get 80% of the profit. And 20% of the profit would go back to the venture fund. And that would help emerging fund managers or first-time fund managers establish themselves because when they receive funding from the government, they have credibility so that they can go raise funds from other private investors when they, didn't, they might not have a long-term track record. So that helped them establish their first fund. There are some public sector, not in the UK, the one that I'm an advisor of, Skydeck which is a part of UC Berkeley. It is an incubation program. And I know that part of the profit that would go back to the fund would go back to the university. And I think this, there are many kind of models in terms of how we structure so that the profit would go back to the society or public university. Another model that I've seen is called donor advised fund. It tends to be a little bit more this one nonprofit type work, meaning we are a venture capital fund. We want to invest. We want to do impact investing. We register as a nonprofit. So you would have donors who would give like foundations who would give a little bit of money and then they would have a say in terms of what kind of company they want to invest in, startup companies, and which kind of company they do not want to invest in. So that's another new concept or business model. Uh, we call it donor advice fund, but there are a lot of ways that the business can be structured or investment can be structured in a way that benefit the investors, the fund managers, and also startup companies. Now, we talked a lot about governments, VCs, that was there any VC model or fundraising model or anything prime for disruption right now that we didn't touch upon? I, I think that we talked a lot about impact investing. If there is going to be some areas is about education. That to make sure that people really know that impact investing is not, non it's not about nonprofit. Impact investing is about optimizing financial returns while also having impact returns. And I think this is the area that re is relatively new that I believe is going to transform the society. Can you share a story or two of some of the companies you've worked with, if you're okay with sharing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I shared about a tech company. There's another company that I really liked that I invest, uh, my fund invested in. It is a fintech company. And this company is also based in Latin America. The founders basically really cares about financial inclusion. They want to make sure that people who, let's say, if you borrow money from the bank and you couldn't pay back because of particular circumstances like COVID, they lost a job or, or anything, they, they're not going to get punished 
for their hero their lives. So this company basically work with the banking systems to help them manage NPL, which is non-performing loans. So what they did was they said, hey, why don't I take a portion of your NPL? Okay, I'm going to help you collect the loans. And part of the loan collections, they take a little bit of a commission. The people or the borrowers who were not able to pay back, but if they can pay back, even if it's a little bit, let's say I borrow $100, I lost my job. I cannot pay back $100 plus interest. But maybe in the next six months or so, I can pay back 20-25%. It's better than nothing. So when you pay back, they create uh, some sort of incentive and credit system so that, oh, at least it's not entirely lost. So when you come back and you need to restart your new business after COVID and whatnot, you can do that successfully. And I think that this is a brilliant idea for a number of reasons. One, you give people a chance that it's actually you do what you can. I'm going to use software management and computer system to really help track you. Actually, benefit the bank too. The bank thought, okay, this is, I'm going to lose the entire money that I, that I uh, lent out, but it's not. At least you get a little bit of money and they save costs because usually you have a separate unit to go out and collect loans. And it was the old system that didn't know how to do it um, effectively. It's very costly. Now, the startup can use software to help them, uh, solve the problem. And most importantly, the startup company can define the standard. You have to understand that in LATM, it is not as developed as in the U.S. that we already have credit rating system, scores, and everything. They didn't have that. So it's the opportunity for them to define their standard. And the loans that they contracted from the bank to help collect, naturally, it is the exclusive right. Because if the bank gave them the NPL loan to go collect, they couldn't give the loan, this very same loan, to someone else. So naturally, is this the right that the startup would have? I, I thought it's a brilliant idea if they do it correctly. And they start small. They start local. Before expand to other countries, they have to go through the bank. And there are a lot of ways that they can scale, not just in this business, but again, in terms of what they can do with the credit that they help build at the local system. For VCs that are here in Silicon Valley and they raise the capital here in the U.S. or Silicon Valley to then deploy in these emerging market countries, Latin America or Southeast Asia, because I do want to dive a little bit more into your future in Southeast Asia. What type of skill sets do they need or knowledge of that geographic area to be able to invest properly in those companies? And what knowledge of impact investment do they need to also be able to deploy that money in that manner? The most important thing when we look into local entrepreneurs in LATAM or potentially in Southeast Asia, they really have to understand the market that they are going to work in. VCs are not expert. We look at the deals or the companies at the 50,000 foot level, but we don't know at the very detail in a local country on what it's like. They have to understand the consumer behavior. If they want to work with enterprise, they, want, they need to know what the enterprise really wants. And I think that we all know this. The, the successful company, let's say in Southeast Asia, that just IPO'd a few months ago is Grab, which is 
basically like Uber. But they took the concept and adapted in a local market and scaled it. And they adapted in a way that, okay, we are not going to be just a ride share company. We're going to be a super app company. They're going to add a lot. They have a lot of functions in one application. So they can do food delivery. They can do payment. They can do anything that involves in end-to-end services, one person to one person, then they can be like the middle to, to make that happen. And they, they were super successful. So they're not 100% similar to Uber, even though the idea and concept could be, originally could be similar. Like they start from like ride sharing, but it's not the only thing because they know that the characteristics or consumer demands in the country within Southeast Asia is different. And I think those are the kind of thing that we are looking for, depending on the business that we are looking at. The same thing as uh, the company I mentioned in terms of NPL, the fintech. It might not work well in the U.S. context because our system is a little bit more developed, right? The way that people work with the banking uh, system, the way that entrepreneurs work with the bank are also different. Or at tech, everything is, it has to be localized, number one. Two, they have to see the path for scale. So let's say they are successful in one country like uh, Peru. Can they do the same in Argentina? If they're going to go to Argentina, what are the things or some of the feature set or some of the criteria that has to be changed? Most importantly, when we invest um, in my fund, we invest in emerging markets, but most of the companies are C-Corp delivery, and we are talking a little bit on the legal side. As an investors, we do take risks, but we don't take political risks. We don't take exchange rate risks. All the things that come from local registration. So when we invest, we do diligence. We said, this is the company that we want to partner with and help grow. So can we make it happen by register you in a U.S. company, sometimes C-Corp Delaware, and then you go scale in a local region. And what are your plans moving forward for Southeast Asia? I would love to have a venture fund to invest in Southeast Asia. It's coming soon, an impact fund. It's going to be the fund focused on financial returns. That's important for the investors, but also impact return to help drive the economy forward. It's not just going to be for Thailand. It's going to be a cluster of countries, hopefully um, at least five countries in Southeast Asia. So Jeep, I want to set you up for this. You've had this amazing career. You're the professor at Haas Business School for Impact Investing. You've worked at the UN. You've worked at the World Bank. Intel Alumni Network that we went over with this global reach of pretty much the who's who of not only Silicon Valley, but the economic, the entrepreneur, the power elites through VC, through startups, through the corporate venture, everything. You have that network. You have that experience. I'm not even sure why I should ask that. Why would you be the ideal person? Why are you going to be so successful? How do you know you're going to be hit that home run in Southeast Asia? I think you answer for me. So (laughs) I appreciate it. I think it's a collective 20 years of experience of doing impact work in a different shape and form. From the World Bank, as you mentioned, creating impact device, investing in Latin America, teaching students or training students on how they, be- they can become an impact investor in the future. I see no reason why this can happen 
in my country of origin, region of origin, Southeast Asia. I would love for you to join me. Those of you who are really interested in venture investing, investing in startups, and want to do good for the society. So coming from a person who's everything in her life has been a success, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, what you're working on, what your plans are for the future, what's the best way to go about doing it? Contact me, please. Give us the information. On LinkedIn, there's only Jeep Klein, K-L-I-N-E on LinkedIn, believe it or not. Um, I'm on Facebook as well. I don't really use a lot of Twitter, but, you, but I have an account there. Or um, email me, labseasky at gmail.com, L-A-B-S-E-A-S-K-Y at gmail.com. Fantastic. We're going to have all that information in the show notes. And I want to thank Han Hai Investments. We are recording in one of their offices in Burlingame. So thank you, Han Hai, for supporting the, the podcast. I also want to thank the Intel Alumni Network for setting up this interview. And we've interviewed some amazing people in the past from their organization. We have many more to come. But more than anything, I want to thank Jeep Klein for taking the time to be on the Silicon Valley podcast. For all our listeners, I know you're going to be listening to this interview multiple times. Please give us a great review on iTunes, on any other podcast platform you listen to this. It encourages us to create more information. Check us out at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. And for everyone out there, entrepreneurs, investors, business leaders, if you're looking for an investment banker to work with, please contact me. I'm on LinkedIn. You can check out my history and my past. I would love to have a conversation. So that's just Sean Flynn. And all my social media handles are Sean Flynn, S-V-S-H-A-W-N-F-L-Y-N-S-V. And with that, Jeep Klein, I want to thank you one more time for being a guest here on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.